Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live. From Connecticut Public Radio, I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Our world is smaller and more connected than ever before. But deep in the Amazon, there are people who live apart from our world without the technology and the creature comforts we depend on. Journalist Scott Wallace has traveled to the Amazon to report on these uncontacted tribes for National Geographic. His book about one of those journeys is called The Unconquered, in search of the Amazon's last uncontacted tribes. Wallace is now a journalism professor at the University of Connecticut. Scott, welcome to our show. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. So I first learned about your reporting on the last tribes of the Amazon uh, when I picked up the October 2018 issue of National Geographic. Uh, uh, In it, you wrote, the forests of Brazil and Peru are home to some of the world's last remote indigenous groups. And you profiled two specific tribes. Tell us more about these tribes. So... There are the uh, Awa, parts of the Awa tribe remain uncontacted or living in isolation from the rest of society. Um, One of the very last isolated tribes living in in the eastern Amazon region. And they, uh, part of their tribe has been contacted over the past uh, 40 years since the 1970s, but there are some scattered bands and one core group that could be as large as somewhere between 50 and 100, we don't know, who are occupying a reserve that is also uh, the land of a different tribe, the Guajajara. The Guajajara have been in touch with the outside world for for decades, in some cases, centuries. And so they, they know Brazilian society well. Many of them have lived out in the cities of Brazil. Uh, many are bilingual. They speak Portuguese as well as Guajajara. And so these two groups, the, the, this uncontacted group of Awa, share this reserve with contacted Guajajara. And the Guajajara, in recent years, have begun to have experienced a change of consciousness. Many of them used to be involved in the logging business mm. and the illegal logging business because this area is a reserve where it's illegal to harvest timber. Um, But in recent years, they have um, seen loggers destroying their woodlands and have begun to fight against the loggers. And they've confederated basically into a a kind of a militia group to patrol their forests and protect the uncontacted Awa. So their fates are, are tied together because of the illegal uh, logging that's occurring there. Their fates are tied together because of the illegal logging and because the Guajajara have come to understand that their survival depends on this healthy forest uh, surviving. The, the area, the primal forest where the last remaining stands of valuable timber are, uh, is also the homeland of these uncontacted Awa, but it's also the area that uh, provides water. It's the headwater region, the headwaters region for the the streams and rivers that 
that provide water and sustenance to the Guajajara communities. So they understand that the protection of this forest is um, important for their survival. And yeah, they've kind of hitched their fortunes to the survival of the Awa because of that. How long has the Brazilian government tracked uh, the Awa? How far back have they lived there? Did they know? Well, it's pretty extraordinary. The Awa, um, how they have actually managed to remain uncontacted in this part of Brazil where all the other tribes have either been contacted or completely wiped out. The area where the Awa uh, inhabit, it's, it's a transitional forest, actually. It's the very eastern fringe of the Amazon. It is um, an area of uh, seasonally dry woodlands, unlike the rainforest further west. It's a buffer zone, really, for the rainforest. It's a um, seasonally dry, deciduous forest, but it's a very large territory. And until the 1960s, was completely unexplored. Then in the time of the Brazilian military dictatorship, this area was opened up to exploitation, mining. Um, the largest uh, iron ore mine in the world, these deposits were discovered uh, mid-century, mid-20th century. And then a railroad was built in to begin exploiting the the iron ore uh, deposits. And that railroad, together with a highway running parallel to it, split the Awa territory in two. So today, actually, you have Awa living north of the railway and this group that I was just describing, the largest uncontacted group of Awa, they're south of this railroad and the highway in their own kind of island uh, forested islands surrounded by ranches, factories. There's there's charcoal production going on, and this one area where this uncontacted group of Awa share with the Guajajara. We've mentioned uncontacted a few times. So what does that mean exactly mm-hmm. um, in terms of how they are able to survive on the land? Yes, it's a it's a, it's kind of a shorthand to say uncontacted. I mean, there's no tribe that has absolutely no awareness of the outside world. But I think the most important thing to understand about an uncontacted tribe or a tribe living in isolation is that they have not sustained um, any continuous contact with the outside world. That means that they are still as vulnerable to the pathogens to the uh, communicable diseases that we carry as the first uh, indigenous people encountered by Columbus 500 years ago on the island of Hispaniola. And and they are also, as importantly, I think, living in almost complete independence of our industrial commodified economy. As long as they have intact, unpolluted, untrammeled forest lands to live in, then they are able to live completely independently of our moneyed economy. Mm. The the one thing um, that I will say is that many of these isolated groups have managed to get their hands on steel machetes or axes. Some of these have probably been traded through other tribes to them. In other cases, they've actually, you know, stealthily approached maybe the camps of loggers, illegal loggers working in their lands, and they've swiped you know, an axe here, a machete there. They understand the 
value of steel. It is far better than, you know, trying to cut a tree down with a stone axe. So a lot of these groups have managed to get their hands on a few commodities from our economy, but they are still essentially uncontacted tribes. Uh, in your story, uh, we learn that the Awa rely on hunting and foraging. Uh, I'm just curious with uh, deforestation, what that has done to uh, the animals that they hunt, that they rely upon. Well, yes, exactly. That's a really big concern uh, the, because not only are the loggers invading these forests to uh, remove timber, but they are also hunting while they're in there. First of all, the depletion of trees and forest cover um, is bad news for the wildlife, but also typically um, when you have these groups of illegal uh, loggers or um, in other parts of the Amazon gold miners, for example, um, they will use. Uh, they will also hunt in the forest, and they will, um, they will they will find most of their food or at least their protein by bush, you know, hunting bushmeat. So they are, you know, these loggers are depleting the animals and the wildlife in these forests. It is a big concern. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. I'm speaking with Scott Wallace, an associate professor of journalism at the University of Connecticut. He's also a contributor to National Geographic. Wallace has written about the lost tribes of the Amazon for many years. His book about one of those expeditions is called The Unconquered, In Search of the Amazon's Last Uncontacted Tribes. We're learning about them today and what, if anything, the Brazilian government can do to help them remain uncontacted. We'll continue our conversation after the break, and you can join us too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. What makes a tribe uncontacted? Journalist Scott Wallace says there are people who do not sustain any contact with the outside world, making them vulnerable to communicable diseases. And they live in complete independence of our industrialized economy. Wallace is a journalism professor at University of Connecticut and contributor to National Geographic. His story about the people living in the most eastern fringe of the Amazon in Brazil, known as the Awa, was National Geographic's cover story last October. Wallace joined me in studio recently to talk about his reporting, including on the Aero people in Brazil. I understand you've traveled to Brazil uh, many times, uh, Scott, yeah. uh, not just to cover the Awa and the Guajajara tribes, uh, but also the Aero people, which was the focus of a book that you wrote, again, The Unconquered. Uh, you went uh, on assignment uh, with National Geographic back in the early 2000s. Tell us about the Aero people. Back over in the eastern Amazon in the state of Maranhão, which is where the Awa are, we know the isolated groups in the forest there are Awa. We know that they are 
um, splinter groups from the Awa tribe. And in fact, I'm sorry, I'll get to the question about the Arrow people in a second, but one of the fascinating things about the Awa is that they, um, the, co- the contacted Awa know that their relatives, you know, they, they know relatives of theirs who are still in the forest. Um, sometimes I might have glancing contact with them. But, you know, I heard several stories from contacted Awa saying, you know, my uncle, uh, you know, when when we were ambushed back in the 70s, my uncle went one way. We lost track of him. And I, and I think that he's still out in the forest. Or somebody would say, I know that the father of my sister uh, remains uncontacted and he's out there somewhere. Mm-hmm. But with the Arrow people in far western Brazil, we don't even know what ethnicity they are. So little is known about the uh, flecheiros in Portuguese, the Arrow people. We don't know what they call themselves. Uh, flecheiros, Arrow people, is just a designation pinned on them by because of their reputation as uh, staunch defenders of their land and uh, and you know very adept at the use of bow and arrow. And uh, they use, you know, arrows to repel intrusions into their territory. Uh, but as far as, and they inhabit an area um, in the one of the very largest uh, uh, wilderness areas in all of Brazil, the Javari Valley Indigenous Reserve, which is an area basically about two thirds the size of Florida. Uh, and also harbors the highest density of uncontacted tribes anywhere in the Amazon and hence in the world in this area, the Javari Valley. The Arrow people uh, occupy an area along the southern southern and eastern boundary of the Javari, and that's the area that I went into with a Brazilian government expedition to track and ascertain the relative well-being of the Arrow people. So uh, when you say that uh, this team went in to track and see how the Arab people were doing, not necessarily to make contact, but just to see uh, maybe the perimeters of where they live or how many there are left? So the Brazilian government's uh, indigenous affairs agency, FUNAI, beginning in the 1980s when Brazil uh, shifted its policy away from contacting the so-called wild tribes of the Amazon, not forcing contact on these groups, but actually identifying the land where they live and protecting that land and expelling any intruders and trying to keep those intruders out. And there's a uh, elite unit inside of the Indigenous Affairs Agency, which is called FUNAI. The elite unit is called the Department of Isolated Indians. And their job is to protect these lands where um, it has been ascertained that isolated tribes are present. But to do that protection, um, to monitor those territories and to protect those territories and keep that forest um, pristine and untrammeled requires uh, vigilance. And some of the vigilance can be done aerially uh, with uh, to beginning now a little bit with drones, but mostly by satellite or, or overflights with um, planes. But to really get a sense of where these groups are moving around and the extent of their wanderings, their seasonal, you know, uh, dislocations in search of animals and water and so forth. The only way you can really do that is a boots on the ground expedition 
under the forest canopy. Um, you know, the, the the forest doesn't give up a lot of its secrets from overhead. You have to go down under the canopy. And what we were doing, the, the expedition that I accompanied, they were looking for signs of the flechados of the Arrow people. We would come across abandoned fishing camps, uh, other signs, twigs that they snap as they walk through the woods. Kind of, they all forest people when they walk through the woods, they will snap the twigs as they go. The the green saplings, kind of like leaving breadcrumbs, like Hansel and Gretel, so they know the way back from where they where they've come from. And so, if you see those snapped saplings, that's an indication that they are around. And the trackers I was with, these indigenous scouts, they could look at one of these snapped um, saplings and say, oh, this is from, you know, last year, a couple of years ago, or this is just, this is really fresh from a couple of days ago. And so we were looking for things like that. What was that like as a journalist to go uh, into uh, this area with this elite team, as you mentioned? Uh, was it challenging? Uh, what was the uh, vegetation like? How did, you, how did you make it through? <laughs> well, it was definitely the hardest thing I've ever done in my life, put it that way. <laughs> so this expedition unfolded. It really had the feel and rigor of a, you know, early 19th century Lewis and Clark style expedition. There were 34 members of the expedition divided among us. There were 20 indigenous scouts from three different tribes contacted, you know, indigenous tribes from the area and 10 sort of frontiersmen from, you know, pretty hardened, mixed-blooded frontiersmen and a handful of officials from Brasilia. But the expedition began in a series of, in in a flotilla of, boats that took us as far upriver as they could go before they started hitting bottom. From there, we transferred our uh, stuff onto these shallow draft skiffs and proceeded upriver as far as they could go. And as we went further upriver in these shallow draft skiffs, we had to cut our way through. Um, There are several trees had fallen all across the river, a strong indication that no outsiders had been in this area for years. We cut our way through dozens of trees that had fallen across the, the river till we got to a place where these smaller boats could no longer mm. go on. We had pretty much we were definitely in the headwaters, and there these boats turned around and went back, and we ba- began essentially a grueling overland trek through very broken terrain. The, actually, the ravines, steep ravines and inclines, um, where four separate rivers were born. We were. And literally headwaters where the water is seeping up out of the ground and gathering in little pools and then little rivulets and streams. And these became uh, one of them in particular. Uh, we were cross- crisscrossing in different watersheds, but eventually we started following one stream that became a major river by the time we got out of there. But that was much later. It was a very gr- grueling, strenuous trip. Uh, one of the uh, people that was part of this expedition, Sidney Posuelo, uh, tell us about uh, this man and mm. why he was so important to uh, this uh, team, again, uh, to track and see if these isolated uh, tribes uh, were doing okay. Yes. Sidney Posuelo, he's the main character of my book, The Unconquered. He is the founder 
of this group, the Department of Isolated Indians. He is the man, more than anyone else, responsible for shifting Brazil's policy. Sidney Pozuelo is a um, professionally um, in Brazil. There's a unique profession called sertanistas. The sertanistas are um, wilderness scouts, indigenous activists, explorers, ethnographers, kind of all rolled into one single eclectic profession, unique to Brazil. And Pozuelo came out of this tradition. He is a sertanista, and he began his career in the um, in the 60s under the tutelage of some very important sertanistas, the Vilas Boas brothers. And he learned his university was the jungle working with these uh, with his mentors. But he the, the sertanistas originally, their purpose was to go deep into the bush and uh, woo the uncontacted tribes from the forest in order to integrate them into the national society. That was the original sort of in a humane fashion. They were scouts who would go into the forest, make contact, bring the Indians, the quote-unquote, you know, wild Indians, as they were called, um, out and and settle them on land. You know, maybe their own land, but push, basically moving them away from the advancing frontier, the roads that were coming in, the agricultural frontier, and do it in a humane fashion. But what Pozuelo and a number of other sertanistas discovered with time is no matter how humane the contact was and how um, uh, beneficent their intentions were, the tribes would begin to die off in large numbers because they lacked immunity to our germs. And so no matter how successful, quote unquote, a contact might be, people would start dying off. And it wasn't enough just to have teams of nurses and doctors, even in the best of circumstances, sometimes when they did have, you know, teams of doctors and nurses in place. Sometimes the 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 um, the uh, indigenous, tri the, the tribesmen or women would just uh, scatter into the forest, taking the germs with them and and passing them on to other members of the tribe. So... Eventually, Pozuelo led this movement in Brazil with a number of other veteran sertanistas to change the policy from, you know, contact to save the tribes to saving them without contact. Well, what did uh, these tribes that were contacted and also part of the members of this elite team, what did they think of you as a, a white journalist uh, covering this expedition? <laughs> uh, I you know, I think... Uh, well, they certainly enjoyed having me on the expedition. They often, in particular, there was one group that there were uh, 12 of them, the Machis tribe, and they are just jokesters and, you know, they'll find a reason to laugh at anything. And I was a, I was like a constant source of mirth for them. <coughs> oh, excuse me. You know, my body hair, for example, which is like completely unknown to them. They were just like, you know, they would they had names for me. Like I was like, you know, the the uh, you know, they called me like sloth, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, I, I, they 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 enjoyed having me. What they <laughs> what they understood about you know who where I was from or my culture, uh, you know, would be fairly limited. <laughs> uh, 
they, but I, you know, in a way, compared to their situation, I was a lot more like Pozuelo and the Brazilians who, you know, who are urban dwellers. That was probably more of a cultural difference for them is that city uh, versus jungle, you know, dichotomy as opposed to me being from another country. The biggest thing was that I was pretty much kind of like, you know, Pozuelo from, you know, some place where they have like these buildings that are taller than the jungle canopy. I explained one day, they were they were asking me, you know, so Scotchy, they call me Scotchy. They said, Scotchy, tell us what it's like where you're from. And I'd start telling them like, you know, we have like special cars that go vertically up and down to take you from one floor to another in these buildings that are way up there, like in the treetops. And, and, and I told them about uh, the cold here and how water freezes and you can put on these shoes that almost have like machete blades on the bottom and skate on, on and they were just, they, they want to hear it over and over again. Scotchy, tell us about, you know, when it turns cold there and you have that white stuff and the leaves fall off. The They'd love to hear stories about where I was from. So I think I was a source of curiosity and amusement. You might be the first guest that made me laugh so hard I was crying. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but uh, in studio with me is Scott Wallace, Associate Professor of Journalism at the University of Connecticut, uh, contributor to National Geographic and author of The Unconquered in Search of the Amazon's Last Uncontacted Tribes. Uh, we're learning more about your reporting on uh, these tribes in the Amazon. Uh, you mentioned uh, some of the reasons why uh, Brazil changed their policy about whether or not to to contact uh, these tribes. But I'm curious if you could tell us more about uh, some of the forces working against people like uh, Sidney Pozuelo. Even today, uh, when we think about uh, the timber in that uh, region, uh, the the forces that are looking to make money, um, are the days of these tribes numbered? It's certainly a uh, critical moment. Uh, I would say now more than ever with the election of the and and coming to power of the new president Jair Bolsonaro who is uh no friend of the indigenous people of Brazil and is um doing you know actively taking measures now to roll back protections of the indigenous territories in Brazil and to um strangle the budgets of the indigenous affairs agency and the environmental protection agency which is known by its acronym IBAMA. Mm -hmm. And IBAMA um, often works with FUNAI, the Indigenous Affairs Agency, to patrol the lands where um, the indigenous tribes are and to mount operations to remove uh, illegal loggers, illegal squatters, gold miners. Um, gold mining is a particularly um, harrowing menace, if you will, for isolated tribes in the Amazon, the Arrow people, for example. Uh, in 2017, rumors emerged from this re really remote area that we traveled in, that I traveled in with Sidney Pozuelo on that expedition, that um, gold miners who were working on uh, these floating platforms, the, the gold dredges, um, invade the, the 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 rivers of the Amazon and they penetrate way up river. These are kind of like Rube Goldberg-like contraptions with cranes um, and drills. And they drill into the uh, riverbank and, and spew out uh, all the affluent and uh, take 
um, take the, you know separate. They use mercury to separate the gold out from the soil as they're chewing into the riverbanks. It's very environmentally destructive, and just like the hunters who are with the loggers or they double do double duty as hunters. Same with these um, men who work on these gold dredges out in the middle of nowhere. They will go off into the jungle looking for bushmeat. And um, 2017, about a year and a half ago, rumors emerged from the Javari that uh, a, a number of the arrow people had been slaughtered on a riverbank by hunters who were working on these gold dredges. So we've never really been able to ascertain if that massacre actually really happened. It's very difficult to um, to investigate those kinds of instances in a place as remote as the Amazon where you have so many um, humidity, microbes, predators, scavengers, um, you know, bodies can disappear rather quickly. And so no concrete evidence was ever found that this, uh, this uh, massacre occurred. But it did highlight how vulnerable these groups are now in particular where the government is pulling back budgets, resources, um, which are critical to protecting these groups. Uh, one of the main ways of defending the lands where these groups are and you know, keeping their jungles intact and keeping these people, the, the isolated tribes, free from the persecution of outsiders are outposts strategically placed at the entrance to these reserves on rivers that block, you know, these outposts block the penetration of um, loggers, industrial fishing fleets, what have you. And with the contraction of budgets and the um, and the um, forced retirement of many field agents, a lot of these outposts have been closing, which is giving. Um, free reign to the bad guys, if you will, to get into these areas, very resource-rich areas, because a lot of these resources have been depleted elsewhere in the Amazon. The most resource-rich lands still untouched in the Amazon are indigenous territories. Mm. And Bolsonaro, the new president, and the people who support him want to get into those lands. Uh, we are fascinated when we read or hear about these isolated tribes. Um, even after your story in National Geographic, uh, uh, this uh, isolated tribe, the Sentinelese, uh, came back in the news uh, mm. late last year. Yeah. Uh, these are This is a tribe that lives uh, on an island in the Indian Ocean because um, of an American, a missionary, who uh, learned about them and tried to uh, contact them with the hopes of converting them, according to news reports. Mm. Uh, and so I'm just curious, uh, when we learn about these tribes, as a journalist uh, reporting on um, isolated tribes or, or the fact that there are just so few left, uh, is walking a fine line because uh, the outsiders are learning about them? And does that make it dangerous for these tribes that are still trying to exist day to day? I think... It's more important that the world know knows that these tribes exist. Uh, it's not a it's not a secret. For I mean, maybe in the case of the the, the case you mentioned of the Mer the American missionary Jonathan Chow, who decided he would try to evangelize 
the Sentinelese on this island, North Sentinel Island, which is in the Andaman Island chain in the Indian Ocean. Uh, but th- th- the tribe's existence has been known for a long time. There are other or have been other isolated tribes in the Andamans that have been contacted in the late 20th century. What makes the Sentinelese, um, I'll get to your main question in a sec, but the interesting thing about the Sentinelese um, is that they are the only uncontacted group that occupies its own island. They do, there are no other people living on that island. In the case of the Amazon, um, the people who really present a mortal danger to the isolated tribes, these are illegal loggers, uh, illegal poachers of animal skins, uh, illegal gold miners, um, squatters. It's no secret to them that these tribes are there. They have been waging a sort of tit-for-tat, back-and-forth um, simmering conflict with these groups for a long time until the Brazilian government stepped in and started protecting these groups and keeping these guys out. But they they don't need the National Geographic to tell them that, you know, the land where the timber is that they want also is occupied by isolated, you know, indigenous people. That's it's so the raising of global awareness of this issue, I think and, and, you know, the fact that we're talking about this today and we're only talking about it today because people like me have gone in there and documented this painstaking work that the Brazilian government's doing to protect these groups, um, I think is, is, you know, on on balance, more important than trying to keep this uh, a secret because it's really not a secret to the people who really represent a threat to these groups. I believe around the time uh, this uh, John Chow uh, was killed by this tribe, again, on an island in the Indian Ocean, you mm. had written about some concerns from um, rights advocates who worried about uh, Funai's uh, decision uh, to release video of some of the uncontacted in the Amazon. Uh, so tell us more about the sentiment that was raised there. Yeah. That's a really interesting case. Uh, so there are a couple of videos that were le- released last fall, sometime last year, um, by FUNAI, Brazil's Indigenous Affairs Agency, uh, taken in two different parts of the Amazon under very different circumstances. One of the videos actually shows arrow people, uh, the flecheros, taken for the first time by an aerial drone. And... Um, so the the images are taken from overhead. Um, you know, it's a little bit difficult, actually, to see down. But if you sort of blow up these images, you'll see, you know, you can see several people moving around this jungle clearing and a, you know, a, a couple of thatched huts. First images ever taken of an isolated tribe by a drone. First t- images ever taken of the arrow people, period. The other video was taken under really different circumstances. This uh, video is of a um, sole survivor of a tribe who's lived on his own in isolation for decades now since the last uh, since the last his last Mm -hmm. comrades, the other members of the tribe were wiped out. He has been living alone and has made it clear that he wants to be left alone. And at first, Funai 
was trying to force contact on this last person. They thought it would be more humane to contact him and maybe move him to another place where he could, uh, you know, uh, have contact and live among another group of indigenous people who were also the last members of their tribe. But in the course of the last decade or so, it's become really clear that he just wants to be left alone. And the the Funai team assigned to protect him have discovered that they are actually in this kind of very interesting indirect communication with him. He has uh, this sole survivor has, um, and nobody knows the name of the tribe. Nobody knows what language he speaks. Whenever Funai has approached one of the huts that he builds to, and tried to coax him out of the hut, he, remain, he has remained completely silent. So no linguists have they, there's, they haven't been able to you know hear any of his speech on on tape or recorded to figure out maybe what language group it, uh, nobody knows. But anyway, one day, a member of Funai got close enough to film him as he was chopping down a tree. And he was chopping down a tree with a steel axe because Funai leaves him gifts to let him know that they are friends. And so they leave him seeds that he plants. They leave leave him tools. And it's clear that this man has begun to understand the difference between the Funai people who are there to protect him and illegal loggers who represent a threat to his survival because they have indicated he digs he digs um, pitfalls, traps with like punji sticks and covers them with camouflages them with leaves and dirt. And on some instances where Funai is approaching up a path, he will he will signal, he will yell out, just not language, just like a imitating an animal or whatever, to let them know, careful, don't walk there. That's a really fascinating story. Uh, one of the people you interviewed uh, when you uh, wrote about, uh, again, the government's decision to release uh, that image of him, uh, someone said he truly is a survivor of a genocide. That's correct. And I think a lot of the um, Brazilian officials who came to this policy and this decision to um, halt the um, the forced contact of these groups understood that, you know, this was an ongoing genocide that had to be reversed in whatever way possible. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're learning about some of the indigenous groups that are largely uncontacted in South America. My guest is Yukon journalism professor Scott Wallace, who's covered Amazon tribes for many years. We'll continue our conversation after the break. You can join us too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. of mourning and anguish in Santa Cruz Loma, a hamlet 25 miles from San Salvador, where survivors of a rebel massacre Monday night yesterday buried 20 relatives. Scott Wallace says it was a cruel party of death. 
According to witnesses, several hundred rebels moved into the That's hills journalist Scott Wallace reporting from El Salvador in the 1980s. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. I'm talking with Wallace today, where we live, about his work covering indigenous groups in South America as a contributor for National Geographic. Wallace is now an associate professor of journalism at the University of Connecticut. I asked him about how his career started. This has been uh, many years that you've been covering uh, these tribes, uh, but your focus on uh, Latin America began uh, much earlier um, when you were a college student and yeah, right. uh, you started a career as a broadcast journalist. Uh, tell us a little bit about you know, how you got interested in Central America and South America. When I was an undergraduate, actually here in Connecticut at, at Yale, I um, made a decision to take a year off and um, I was looking for, I, I had been heavily influenced by some classmates in my first couple of years at Yale. I knew a lot of Latin American students and, and Arab students as well. And I started thinking about how can I um, learn more about the world, not just go like on a trip to Europe, but to, you know, really understand how the rest of the world lives. And I ended up finding a volunteer position in, in the jungle of Peru and left and, and went to Mexico first, studied intensive Spanish that summer, traveled overland to Peru, went out to the jungle. It was really basically, you know, I had this idea that I was actually going to help these indigenous people that I was living among. It was basically the other way around, and I was just trying to f survive. But it was a real eye-opening experience. I found uh, in the course of that year that I loved um, the people of Latin America, I loved their openness, their generosity, their, um, their uh, that language, the culture, the music. I kind of just fell in love with, um, with Latin America. I came back to Yale, I finished in, in a couple of years, doubled down on my studies of Spanish and really learned how to read and write it and um, went back to Latin America for another year. I still hadn't figured out what I was going to do with myself, though. And finally, after you know a series of jobs, I started thinking, well, you know, I love to travel. I love Latin America. I'm really interested in the politics because at that time, late 70s, early 80s, there's a lot of turmoil. The U.S. in the 70s had helped overthrow the democratically elected government in Chile. And the um, the Sandinista Revolution was uh, coming to power in, in uh, Nicaragua. There was a civil war breaking out in El Salvador. And I felt like I really wanted, I really want to go there, see it with my own eyes, and report to the American people. I felt like there was, uh, I felt like we were missing something in most of the news stories. Like we weren't really getting at what was going on. And I felt this real identification with the culture. So I went back to journalism school, went back to school with the express idea of going to Central America when I got out. And while I was in journalism school, because I knew I, the only way I was going to go to Central America into the, a big story where a war was going on um, as a, you know, somebody straight out of school was going to be as a freelancer. No one was going to pay to send me there and pay for my insurance and you know, all of those expenses. So I realized I had to go as a freelancer. And to be a successful freelancer, I wanted to learn as much about the trade and as many different media as possible. So while I was in University of Missouri, where I went to journalism school, I studied broadcast. I learned how to do radio and television, how to write a you know news story for newspapers. I was taking photography classes. And um, so when I got to Central America and I went, I got to El Salvador a month after I graduated from Missouri and I was photographing 
doing radio for CBS, started field producing for CBS Evening News, and writing for a succession of um, outlets, which we be- began with the Atlanta newspapers. So I was doing everything. I was shooting, writing news stories, doing radio, producing television. And I, I kind of you know, I, I ended up staying there for seven years doing all those things. You were truly a one-man band. Yeah, that's right. Uh, you mentioned about a very unstable time in Central America. Uh, tell us more about what it was like to be a correspondent uh, covering these proxy wars, uh, This, uh, the fact that the U.S. was backing certain groups against rebel groups, and uh, what has happened in these countries that have led to so many people still trying to flee uh, <laughs> today to our border, Scott. Yeah. I mean, one of the reasons that I felt um, compelled to go to Central America in the first place was I thought that we were, the United States government was pursuing an erroneous policy. Um, By and large, my understanding was, and um, in some instances, Confirmed. I mean, the, you, 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 once you get on the ground, those sort of shades of black and white turn more into very, you know, shades of gray. But the, the United States was, you know, here we came from this revolutionary tradition. We were, you know, born of revolution here. But the U.S. in, in the 20th century came to be a counter-revolutionary country, hell bent it seemed on squashing revolution wherever it popped up, and seeing every even homegrown rebellion in terms of the Cold War. That was the Cold War, um, I think, and the Cold War mentality um, distorted the vision of the people um, who were, you know, carrying out the policy. So that even, you know, where there were uh, legitimate grievances, um, it was seen as a Soviet, you know, conspiracy and... uh, and, I, you know, I think in a lot of ways the policies of the 1980s were wrong. One of the things that was very uh, interesting about this time, um, I don't know if you could say either ever before or since, the, era, the it was a unique moment when American reporters actually had access to the sides that, the, that, that our government was fighting mm-hmm. against. And so in El Salvador, where I started out in Central America, you could drive within an hour, two, three hours from the capital, and you could find the guerrillas, the enemy, you know, and you could um, interview them, photograph them. You know, sometimes you were taking your life into your hands, crossing lines because you didn't know if you might get ambushed by the army coming back, the army that we were supporting. Uh, and uh, it was, it was uh, a real eye-opening, incredible experience. The fact that we were pursuing military solutions there instead of looking for a way to, you know, peacefully resolve these differences ended up, um, we ended up flooding the region with, uh, with weaponry and, you know, hundreds of thousands of rifles maybe in the end, automatic weapons, assault rifles, and all sorts of other military hardware. But not just the hardware itself, but, you know, you you subject a society to that kind of uh, conflict for so long, you're tearing away at the social fabric. You are um, turning citizens against each other. And when the war comes to an end, 
The the weapons are loose among the population. The, the economy has been ravaged and largely destroyed. What are the people going to do, um, you know, for work? They'll take their weapons and learn to do something else with them, like mm-hmm. commit crimes. I mentioned uh, we're seeing uh, many migrants coming to our border uh, when these proxy wars were going on. There were many uh, refugees, people leaving and coming here. Um, So when we, again, look at the headlines today, Scott, and see uh, what is left in the violence that uh, persists in places like Guatemala and El El Salvador, Mm -hmm. uh, what should Americans be thinking about when, when they see these headlines? That we share a large part of the responsibility. So not only did our um, policies produce waves of refugees in the 1980s, um, in many instances, the younger kids who came here were orphaned or they came with a single parent or no parents and um, and got sucked into gang culture in Los Angeles, Houston, um, Washington, D.C. And then in the, so that was the start of it. And then, uh, then in the 1990s, you know, um, we began to deport them in large numbers, a crackdown on, you know, anyone who had any kind of committed any kind of crime were deported back to El Salvador, Guatemala. That's the birth of the gangs that we have today in El Salvador, Guatemala, the Northern Triangle and Honduras, where the kids that fled the war to the states and were later deported back. So we kind of, you know, there was kind of a double whammy there. Um, And now, of course, we're trying to keep the people who are fleeing this violence in their own country from coming here. It's been a real pleasure to speak with you, Scott. Thank you very much. It's been my pleasure. Scott Wallace, Associate Professor of Journalism at University of Connecticut, a contributor to National Geographic and author of the book The Unconquered in Search of the Amazon's Last Uncontacted Tribes. Today's show produced by Lydia Brown. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. You can learn more about the show at wmpr.org slash where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. As always, thanks for listening.